We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Daniel Moore, and you're listening to a Hearing Architecture mini-episode. In this mini-episode, you're going to be hearing from Dr. Josephine Vaughan. Jo is a lecturer at the University of Newcastle and teaches construction ecology and also researches building materials and their impact, whether positive or negative, on the natural environment and human health. Jo is also a specialist in the Living Building Challenge certification system and the selection of building materials that have a positive social impact and aren't toxic to the environment. This mini-episode is about an hour long, so if you're interested in responsible materials in building, you should probably have a pen ready to take down some great notes. Here's Joe speaking with Imagine Committee member Kalina Sparks about the Living Building Challenge and the importance of responsible material specification. Hi, Josephine. Thank you so much for engaging in this podcast with Imagine. Thanks, Kalina. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So I understand that the materials is like a petal of the Living Building Challenge. And so what does that kind of encompass as someone who might not be very familiar with Living Building Challenge or this so-called red list? um, What do things like that encompass and tell us about building materials? Well, I'll just start by telling you that I got involved in the Living Building Challenge because of a real project that's going on at Tari called First Steps Count, which is a type of community health building. And they decided to take on the Living Building Challenge to guide them in their process of designing and constructing this building because they really liked the way the Living Building Challenge looked at sustainability but also really looked at human health and community so they are yeah they asked us to help the university this little team we have there on um, helping them decide on which which building materials to use Um, because yeah one of the criteria in the living building challenge is the materials so they call these criteria they call them petals so the materials is one petal and the parts of the things they ask you to do around these deciding which materials go into your building that you're kind of assessed for are how the location of where the materials are made so this way it starts to develop a relationship between the building and the manufacturer and the designers and people involved in the process and it develops a kind of relationship between the building and the community so that's one thing that's really interesting the other thing that they really needed help with was what you're calling this red list and that's basically a list that the living futures institute who are the governing body of the building challenge it's a list of really building materials that are toxic to human health and toxic by the way that we breathe them in So you might have heard of volatile organic compounds, uh, VOCs, and that's what these things on the red list are. 
Okay, this is super technical and very much into the detail, but I think we can go there and then we can broaden it out a bit. So volatile organic compounds. Um, can you give us some examples of some products that might be in our houses that we might all be exposed to that might contain some of these VOCs? Well, there's kind of two things. I mean, if you've got things in your home that are made from natural materials, then you can be fairly sure that you're avoiding VOCs unless those materials are then glued together or have a paint or some kind of a, like a clear finish on them. And this is because, and I, I'm getting technical, you know, I'm a bit of a science nerd. Awesome. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> the way that these things work is that they uh, something that typically emits VOCs is like a magical product that starts off as a liquid and then hardens into a solid surface. So in the building industry, things like paint, paint is it's a great product, you know, you slap it on and then it dries out and you've got a fabulous surface. But part of the chemical process in that means that as that chemical reaction occurs, that these gases are released into the atmosphere. The same with glue. So glue we have everywhere now and glue really releases a lot of these VOCs as well. And do VOCs only get released as it's hardening or actually getting released over time as the material ages and the finish might age as well? That's right, Kalina. It doesn't, it, they're the strongest at the beginning at that they do continue to off gas, they call off gassing over time. So if you think about, people talk about that new car smell. If you get into a new car, you can really smell and some people even get sick from being in a new car. That's that, that kind of smell. And over time it disappears, but it is still there. And if you also think that we're kind of enclosed in these spaces. And in some cases in office buildings with no openable windows and natural ventilation, everything's kind of ventilated mechanically via air conditioning. Yeah, so you're not able to get out the VOCs or off-gassing from synthetic materials. So the red list tells us what are the bad materials. So I guess what is the latest in materials science and the latest research which give us the positive products to use and how can we kind of make better decisions? So I know, for instance, with me and my role and for all of the emerging architects and young architectural graduates who might be listening to this podcast episode, are there any resources that are open source and put together by Living Building Challenge that we'd be able to research and go on this journey of exploration and how to make better decisions as practitioners? Yeah, Kalina, you've really nailed it because you're right. We want to look towards a positive future and we don't want to be forever worrying and grumbling about negative issues. And I think, yeah, that's what we need to do is really look towards a positive future and how can we achieve that? But problematically, that kind of information doesn't currently exist in any one place. So 
excitingly, part of the work that I'm working on at the moment is developing such a database. And I have been doing that with some of my students' help. Some of their assessment tasks will feed into this database. And But really, for the Living Building Challenge, they have a thing where they have their own label for building products. So if you want to look up, declare and write, maybe write Living Building Challenge Declare into your search engine, you'll come up with this, the Declare label system. And what's really interesting about that system is it provides, it's like when you look on a packet of food, it has like the ingredients. So this label shows the ingredients of your building product. Now, if you think about that normally, you probably don't know what the ingredients are of any of the products that you're using. So that information is usually really hard to find or you have to go searching through material safety data sheets, material product descriptions to find that information. It's often quite buried. And do you think we're moving to a place as uh, that manufacturers are becoming a little bit more open with the ingredients and materials and trying to further the kind of research and responsibility of making a lower impact on the environment? I think the only way that's really going to happen is people like your listeners who are interested in a sustainable future, putting that call out there, like actually contacting manufacturers and saying hey look I'm really actually concerned what what are the materials in your product or or it looks really good can you just tell me you know does it have any of these and you can access that red list list for the living building challenge website so you can just have that list handy I mean the living building challenge asks anyone doing the building challenge to advocate for nature essentially and that you are expected to contact several of the product manufacturers and actually make that that conversation with them. So there have been examples where people doing the Living Building Challenge have contacted a, a manufacturer and said, look, we'd love to use your product, but it contains a formaldehyde-based glue. Is there any reason you could change to another glue? And the manufacturer said, hey, yeah, sure, we can change. There's no reason we'll, we were actually using that glue. It was just something we kind of always did. And now that product is made without the VOC emitting chemical in it. Right. So it's really, it needs to be this conversation between practitioners and manufacturers kind of collaborating essentially to create these this demand for effective products that are not emitting, but also the manufacturers then taking on that responsibility, I guess, of creating less impact but it seems to be pretty hard because in the first place we don't know what's in the product so you might get a plywood and you don't know what the timber is where it's been sourced from where it's been transported from or how it's been transported by freight shipping or air travel potentially and then you don't know what glues they're using and what chemicals are involved in that glue so quite interesting really well what what you've just done there Kalina is kind of list the things that you think are environmental criteria of importance so 
I think for everybody listening, if you could think what are my or our, like and where your workplace, it could even be an opportunity for you to get together and to say, look, can we just list down what are our major environmental concerns? And they're the kind of things that you start to make these dialogue with um, manufacturers. And you mentioned communication, and I think that is also really part of it. So the really interesting thing with the Living Building Challenge is that relationship thing. So doing this project at Taree, it spiralled out into this amazing spider web of connections with a lot of different manufacturers and installers and designers and builders, and which has also further gone into a whole heap of different really interesting research projects that are turning into reality in terms of like, for example, using locally sourced FSC timber and then another local laminated beam manufacturer getting together. It's working with getting recycled aggregate into the concrete in the building and all these people are really enthusiastic. Yeah, but nobody kind of linked it all up. Yes, and no one had the conversation to begin with to say, hey, how can we challenge the status quo? Mm -hmm. Or even, you know, even it doesn't have to be a challenge. It's like, let's just say, look, here's this. It's so obvious. Let's just do this. And it's, yeah. Let's have a conversation about it. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And, And the other thing is that... I think maybe coming in from this from the outside or perhaps as a junior practitioner that you might feel you don't really have any authority to talk about this, but I think you sort of have the voice of enthusiasm and also don't forget about the power of your voice as part of the future. Like there's a bunch of old fogies just faffing around doing stuff still. You're the one who's going, look, actually – this is my planet to inherit, you know, we want to make a change. We've got some fresh ideas. Yep, maybe they're a bit spooky to you, but then you think, oh, there'll be people against these ideas. But what I've really found is you actually unearth a lot of people who are really interested and really passionate about the environment who might have kind of been quiet about it or thought, oh, our product doesn't really meet any environmental kind of criteria it's not on the hipster magazine list but actually it's really sustainable product or it's locally manufactured or yeah just get out there and have a chat with some people awesome so for all the young practitioners and emerging architects that may not necessarily want to go down the certification route and it's similar to Passive House and Green Star it kind of adds this whole other layer to the process where you have to get another sub-consultant essentially involved in order to certify the building. So what is your advice I guess for young and emerging practitioners in how to start change? Mm. Well, I think the first thing to do would be to get your workplace on board with this idea. And I would like to suggest that you could approach this as in specification and procurement are really investments of money. So when we spend money, we're making a conscious decision what we're going to spend it on. And I think that's a vote with your money and it's it's kind of what are we going to invest are we going to invest in the future and maybe we could pay a little bit more for 
a future that looks a lot more positive or, you know, do we just kind of keep going with the same old door handles? So I think if, if your client and your workplace are more on side with that, then you've kind of got a bit of a start and a bit of a reason why you might spend a little bit more time researching on products and why you might be able to justify spending a little bit more money if that's the case. Not always that more sustainable choices are more expensive, but they can be. So that's kind of just having a a bit of a discussion around that and maybe just talking about, you know, why it is important. But then you can use something like the Living Building Challenge to help guide your thinking, like use any of the certification processes. You don't have to actually do it, but they've already sat down and worked out a whole bunch of criteria and a whole different ways to measure it and present it and think about it. So you could pick any one of those and you you don't have to do the whole lot of it. But I think the more that you practice trying the certification system, then in the end, you won't need a subconsultant because you will be the consultant. You'll know how that certification system works and it will become easy to apply in your workplace. And I think that's a value add as well. So it might be that you might be saying, look, I want to spend a bit more time doing these things, but in the end, I'm going to become skilled up on how we can apply these sustainability criteria across the workplace Um, in every project that comes up. Mm. And I guess it's about making that first step to specify and research the insulation type and then you have it forever kind of in your inventory of these materials that work and are quite efficient. Well, yes and no. So I would say, yeah, that's right. You do start to build up products that you know work and are good, but what you really need to know is why they're good because products are constantly changing. So what was once a good product may may no longer be um, or there might be something better or something better and cheaper, uh, better and more local. So it's kind of coming back to that idea you had before about your list of what are my priorities here. And I guess that those um, certification systems kind of provide that priority list for you. So that makes it a bit of an easier first step. Basically, you really have to come and do my construction ecology course and then you'll learn. (laughs) Sounds great. I want to be there. (laughs) And so um, that's an interesting little divulge as well. So you as a lecturer in the university space, how are you starting to get your students really excited and engaged about environmental outcomes and about things as technical as ingredient lists with within materials. I think that your passion can be really infectious and I think that has really helped with the course and, and engaging students. I mean, I still have students who do say, I don't really see what's the point of this course. It's got nothing to do with my future. You know, 400 students, um, not everybody's going to come to the table with this at the end. But I think, yeah, it is that passion and that engagement and just being willing to kind of step outside and say, look, you know, this is a serious issue. And also, I think in the class, I'm not just doom and gloom. I mean, I do lay out the situation as it is. I think most of your listeners will probably be aware of the situation as it is environmentally. But then I don't spend the whole semester just being depressed about it. 
I actually talk about what can we do and share examples with the students um, and bringing guest lectures of people who are already making really amazing changes and doing really interesting things out there in the built environment universe. So I think those kind of positive, just being positive about it, I mean, we do kind of need to panic a little bit and move rapidly, but we don't want to just get bogged down in doom and gloom. It does stop you from moving forward, I think. So just being honest about your own passion and your own interest. I mean, not, even if it's not just environment, there's a million important things that could do with a bit of enthusiasm. And if that's your area of passion, then, you know, speak out about it and chat to people about it, random strangers, if they, <laughs> anyone, oh, what are you doing lately, Kalina? Just start raving onto them about your latest passion project and that kind of thing gets things moving. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about the Plastic Police? Mm. So there's a great organisation whose overall name is Cross Connections. You should look them up on your search engine. And they have a kind of offshoot called the Plastic Police. And it's about soft plastic recycling within the construction industry. So cross connections are really a closed loop or circular economy facilitators, I guess. So they would go into a construction site and say, for example, you think of all the materials coming onto a site all wrapped in plastic. You take all that plastic off, all the plastic covers on furniture, all the, you know, I saw a building the other day with its lovely little zincalumi covering, every single panel covered in a sheet of plastic. So, you know, miles and miles of plastic coming off what's going to happen to that plastic. So Cross Connections, Plastic Police, come in and kind of broker the process of taking the plastic, but it's not just taking it away and it's not a free service. They ask that the construction company, for example, to invest in this plastic. So to spend some money to then convert this plastic into something else that goes into the building. So, for example, plastic car stops like bollards and signage and any kind of molded plasticky item that are in buildings, even like tiny little bits and pieces, you know, plastics everywhere. But what happens is that the industry, I guess, is, is reinvesting in this thing. You can't just expect, you know, plastic to be taken away for free. We need to develop a market for that plastic what's going to happen to it. So we really need to be investing. Again, this is the same thing with the sustainable specification is that you're investing in a future where something can happen to waste. So you're investing, if you buy products that are made out of repurposed, recycled, reused materials, then you're investing in the circular economy. And that's a really great place to invest. And do you think the circular economy, how do you see it taking hold in the building industry and in architecture? Well, I mean, I look at it mostly around materials in that kind of way, but the, the circular economy and the closed loop applies to a lot of things. And I mean, Living Building Challenge uses closed loop for a lot of its different criteria. So for example, water, they ask that all the water that falls on your site, you're taking charge of all that water. So you're collecting it and you're using it for you know plumbing within the building 
any stormwater you're collecting on site and you're slowly dispersing back into the environment. So you take full responsibility for all the water that lands on your site and the same with power. So the Living Building Challenge isn't just net zero where the idea is whatever you use, you pay back. In Living Building Challenge, they say whatever you use, you pay back more, like we create a, a better future. So, yeah, you you generate all the power on your own site or more and put it back into the grid or, or use it in some other way. Okay, Joe. so if you could tell us a little bit about how First Steps Tyree dealt with all of the uh, Living Building Challenge pedals. So the first one is energy. Well, just to say first up that as a consultant on materials, I'm not across every single one in detail, but we have had like group meetings where every representative from every pedal has got together for, um, you know, updating on where we are. So for the energy pedal, the first thing to do with the energy pedal is first to try and reduce your energy use. So the overall building is designed in a solar passive way. So, you know, facing north, using good overhangs, minimizing glass where necessary, maximizing glass in other places, good insulation, so that really the energy use of the building in terms of heating and cooling and lighting is minimized. The building also has been designed so it doesn't need air conditioning, but because it is a health centre, there is air conditioning that can be used sometimes. Now, to make that into a regenerative future, it's, we're using solar panels on the site, which so the um, electrical team and also the services team are working to um, determine how much, how many panels they needed, how much energy needs to be generated and also like to develop these kind of systems where say for example a air conditioner that doesn't need to run constantly so that was how they addressed that pedal. Okay what about equity? Okay so equity is about accessibility of the building to anybody and it also is around like access to the site so We've made sure everything's on grade or ramped, so there's no stairs for access in the building. There's some stairs for play for children, so it's accessible very easily no matter what your mobility. We've also added some bicycle parking under shelter to encourage bicycle transport to the site. And we're also proposing to put a footpath outside the building because it doesn't have a footpath there. So it's really hard for people, like if you're wheeling a pram, for example, on the street past parked cars and things, it's kind of, you know, that's an equity issue. So that's the kind of thing that equity deals with. It's a bit of a relationship thing with the building planning. Right. And, and accessibility, opening it up to the community and kind of giving back to the community in some way. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things about Living Building Challenge is an opportunity to give back. It's beyond the, the site itself. Like you might invest money in other areas of the local community rather than just your building. Or like the programming of the use. So maybe um, people like community groups can use it out of hours and book in to use it potentially in a more yep. broader exactly. sense. Yep. Okay. Uh, health. Well, the health pedal is a lot to do with the 
building materials as well. They're kind of tied together. So there's the low VOC in the health pedal. And and ventilation? Yeah. Light? Yeah, just good quality indoor spaces. What about beauty? Now, this one's an interesting one because it kind of talks about aesthetics, which is like a big part of what we do as architects. We're kind of an artist trying to bring this sense of artistry into built form. So how is beauty achieved? Well, I know what you mean, but sometimes I wonder about some of these things, like who's to decide what's beautiful, really? Mm. And beauty, and there's a couple of the other ones, have to do with this idea that Living Building Challenge is really a fan of called biophilia. And that's the relationship between humans and nature, which I think is a really nice idea, but I think it needs a bit more exploration. But yeah, that's about, you know, being able to sit in a building and look outside and kind of connect with nature outside, being able to easily move in and out of a building and not be kind of cut off from nature, but being closely connected with nature. Also using a lot of building materials that reflect the natural landscape. So you might have timber posts um, that aren't painted or hidden behind a wall. You can actually see the timber and then be thinking about uh, that came from a tree. We're lucky we had a tree, you know. And it also like a lot of um, maybe indoor plantings and other things like that just to make a beautiful space. The other thing in beauty is the idea of investing money just for the sake of beauty. So in the Living First Steps Count Tari project, the project has engaged several local artists to do part of the art like the wall surface is like an artwork and then to do some sculptural work inside and outside of the building so it's that kind of investment in beauty just for beauty's sake not for any other really reason interesting and the materials pedal yes so the materials really covers the idea of responsible materials so um, we already have certification systems that you'd be aware of, like um, FSC, Forest Stewardship Council Timber, for example. So anything that, or a declare label. So materials that are known to be like products that are known to be responsible environmentally on where they come from. So they really ask for a lot of your materials to have that labeling or like a chain of custody. So if I use a timber that once upon a time came from a bridge somewhere now those kind of timbers have a chain of custody number with them so you can use a timber and you'll say hey look that came from that bridge over at Tari and so did first steps Tari did you use things like that yeah yep sadly because the building hasn't been built yet <laughs> we did have a lot of that and it burnt in the bushfires Oh, my goodness, really? So had you stocked up materials that you had sustainably sourced and then they burn? Oh, my gosh, that's horrible. Yeah. So I think that's one thing with using reused materials is you do kind of need to stockpile them in advance and that's something that needs to be thought about in the design and, and the certification process is just thinking about, say I wanted to use secondhand windows or something or secondhand windows and doors for example or come in all different sizes so you can't just sort of design a building and then try and find a secondhand door or window that fits 
your given size, you kind of need to have that material already to go. So that has a lot of implications with like storage and I mean, you wouldn't expect a bushfire to go through, but the company uh, Australian Sustainable Timbers who are doing the timber for the glue laminated beams, not using a formaldehyde glue, by the way, <laughs> um, when the bushfires were coming, they moved all of their timber from their mill site and brought it into Dungog for safe storage. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, there's that kind of thinking about things. But, you know, I guess we do need to think about these things in the future. Bushfires are going to become more common unless we do something about it to stop climate change now. Yes, and rewild the landscape I'm very into that. Yeah, so living economy sourcing, they call it, which is the idea of where your site is and then how far it is that your materials come from the site. So you were talking before about transport of materials to site and how, you know, that can throw out our calculations environmentally. So the Living Building Challenge asks that the manufacturer not just the reseller or the seller of the product but the actual manufacturing of the product occurs within certain sets of distances of the site so that's what we started with that living building challenge tari project is looking locally where could we find the building materials for the project um, and it's not actually just about transport it's about building the community locally and supporting local industries um, especially when you think like a lot of manufacturing is in a more regional outskirt area. So to keep supporting that as a local process is a really nice community relationship that the buildings can have with the community. And so therefore, did you start making relationships with local mills and local suppliers of products? Yeah, so there's like a local brickworks at... Um, Tari called Lincoln Blit Bricks and they work they fire their kilns with timber scraps so the builder for the First Steps Count project got really interested in that and so it was talking with the Lincoln Mills and this is just a bit of one of those stories how the Living Building Challenge kind of encourages this expansion of ideas and really good things happening from that the builder was talking about how the treated pine offcuts are toxic to the soil and when you tip them they just go he separates his waste but it just ends up going into the normal landfill anyway the toxic waste and even if it's burnt in the kiln the ash is toxic so the mill doesn't burn the toxic waste and that's become now an area of research through the university that we're investigating this what can we do with toxic waste from just off cuts and things like that mm, and even asbestos it's the same landfill like might be a different section of landfill but you just double bag it and then you drop it off at the same landfill as everything else that's right and that comes back to that that sustainable specifying again it's like what are we using and what's go, what's going to happen to it in the end? You know, we mm. can't just, because it becomes then an, a greater, another environmental disaster when we're just filling the soil with toxic waste that then goes into waterways. And it comes back to bite us as humans anyway and, and certainly affects biodiversity. Mm. 
You've spoken about before um, end of life of materials and how some plasterboards can be mulched and put in the garden and kind of returned to the earth. Yeah, plasterboard is a kind of, yeah, that an example of that. So plasterboard is basically gypsum, which is a mineral which can be used to help fertilise um, agricultural soils. And it's just gypsum between two sheets of really thin cardboard. So that's a great product. It doesn't have any glues in it. It's good to go in terms of scrunching it up and reusing it in agriculture. But that's only clean scraps of plasterboard. Once you've painted it and once you've stuck glue all over it or stuck it all over a stud frame covered in glue, mm. when, if you've ever pulled plasterboard off the wall that's been built recently, it's all covered in glue. And then that means you can't go mulching that up and sticking it in somebody's paddock because then you're going to be putting toxic chemicals all through agricultural land. So you need to have a compostable glue. We do need a compostable glue. That is a Someone great Someone needs to invent that. Yes. Someone out there listening, start making it. And, yeah, that, and that's again why in your specification you paint. You need to look at non-toxic paint that you're using so that it becomes something that's easy to get rid of or to recycle at the end of life. So also in Living Building Challenge Materials Petal, they look at waste and really looking to have really no waste on a building project, which as anyone knows is really difficult. But organisations like Mervac, for example, really big construction company are looking to go to zero waste to landfill by 2030. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And it just goes to show that the market, despite government support or lack thereof, the market can really drive this engagement and and rapid change just by setting these goals. Absolutely. And I think that is a part that architects can play when clients start talking about these things to really support them through that. And, you know, as an emerging architect, you could be out there doing a bit more research, getting your knowledge up and being able to speak up and say, hey, you know, I reckon we could do this if we did blah, 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 that you've already worked out and that's the kind of change that we need. Okay, so back to first steps, Tari. We'll just finish the petals. So how is the place petal dealt with? Yeah, place is a really nice one. I think it's kind of, to me, it's the first petal. And it's always, I think we need to connect with the site and understand the very long history of sites um, and understanding their ecology, their biodiversity, that's kind of the first step. And you're supposed to reflect this history back in your project in some way. So I would say for everyone, the first step has to be understanding the Indigenous story of that site and reaching out and finding and connecting with local community on that area. In the First Steps Count Taree, it's a really strong Indigenous area. So we had a lot of different input coming in with a lot of different stories. And, and that that's sort of really driven the design in a lot of ways and, you know, given us a lot of resources to work with. So that's been really awesome. Also, 
we are meant to respect the place. So if there is an existing, you're really only meant to build on already built sites and not build on any new pristine sites. If you are having to remove ecological systems, then you're meant to pay them back by investing in some other form like you know in Australia there's that thing where you can pay money towards conserving wildlife it's privately owned wild spaces in Australia and this is the way the living building challenge projects can reach out beyond their actual site so you may be chopping down trees on your site but you're paying for trees to be preserved somewhere else and for a long period of time Yes, you would think for all eternity, but who knows? Wow. Yeah, well, you know, there's a massive issue at the moment with like all of these sections of Crown land just being sold off to developers and developers go in and clear fell everything and put up a whole bunch of project homes without any mature trees or anything and then like suddenly you've got this urban heat island with all of these kind of manufactured systems complete disregarding the site, in my opinion. Yes, I agree, Kalina. But, you know, let's think about what we can do for the future with these kind of situations. Yeah. And I think that generally that, that's, again, is market demand and that's you just getting out there and spruiking the the good things that you learned in architecture and, and encouraging people to not purchase into such things or if they're going to purchase and make demand of the developer and say, hey, I don't want a black roof on my house because that's going to up my air conditioning bill by a bazillion every summer. Yeah, seriously. It's, but sometimes it's impossible to uh, explain that to people. I tried to explain that to my cousin once and he was just like not having any of it because he liked the look of the black roof. Yeah, I have a similar kind of cousin. Maybe we're related. It's just like, (laughs) what the heck? It's like people have forgotten. Yeah, what I think in the future, we can kind of help people to move away from those things by, you know, for example, electricity becomes more expensive and people are actually thinking, oh, how could I reduce my energy bill? So kind of coming at it from maybe a financial level for some people who aren't really that worried or, you know, thinking about the environment, just talking to them about from that perspective. I think the other way is that that we can drive policy change and we can ask why are local councils allowing such things to be built in their local areas. So if, if you're a member of your local council area and you see these developments then ask the council the question like what's going on because a lot of councils are actually turning towards a much more sustainable development plans than what they have in the past so it's almost like you can drive from a more policy or government level change when other people aren't that interested in doing it so also in the future there will be more and more government requirements around sustainability I mean the Section J of the NCC is going to be increasing to include much more insulation in buildings. So these kind of things have to happen regardless of what people think about black roofs. Sometimes we just need to enforce our ideas. (laughs) And the final pedal, the water pedal. Now the water was an interesting one because for the water pedal, 
the beginning was quite easy. So it has to be about helping people to value water as a resource. So we're already on the scene with that. And we're going to reach out to the wider community and um, like do a bit of water saving education and provide low flow taps and things to people for free in the community. But then we had a bit of a stumbling block in the project and it again has to do with governance of something like water. So, I mean, there's a really good reason that we don't just randomly drink water out of muddy pools, you know, that that's not good for people's health. But that's where how, I guess, water management on site has developed um, to a really extreme standard of health and safety. So on this project, we've got to collect and use all our own water on site. Now, if you're doing that in a domestic setting, it's a lot easier. So you might already in your own home. I know I have, I mean, I live completely off grid, so I use everything from the rainwater. But a lot of other people in the city probably use may use it now for toilet flushing and things like that. Or you can be drinking from your tank and putting it through a filter system. But because this is a public building, we have had a problem with being able to use the water for everything, even washing hands, because anyone could kind of use that water somehow, like the washing machines, for example. So that has ended up being one of the most expensive pedals to achieve because we have to have the full water purification system using solar and like UV and um oxygenation yeah oh my gosh wow so you've had to not only collect your water but completely treat it to like a town water quality yeah so yeah that that was a big sort of blockage to things being easy and that has also in that kind of outreachy communication way there was a little bit of discussion about trying to work this through with the water authorities around that. But the other thing is the stormwater is all collected on site, but the site isn't quite big enough to deal with the, because the roof is quite large, to provide some really nice outdoor spaces. So there's a lot of roof areas that we collect a lot of water. So the runoff from the tanks and then just the stormwater on site there's not enough site to um, manage that in a, a sort of urban sensitive water planning way. But the thing we live in really challenge, we can move out into the wider landscape. And so we're going to be able to use the neighboring land, which I think belongs to a school as a, yeah, like a berm kind of system. So the water can collect and then slowly disperse into the soil naturally. Wow, so you're even able through these relationships and discussions be able to cross boundaries, which is like a massive thing. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing in terms of sustainability and understanding that we're in a, like a big natural system. Like nature doesn't have little lines drawn around all of you know its places. Uh, nature extends much more broadly and into a really complicated kind of landscape. So being able to use this approach beyond the site and reaching out 
you know, what are the kind of tendrils of the buildings and what, how your building could offer something positive back to the local environment. And even if that's an understanding of the local environment and a real like connection with the community around how nature works and how buildings are impacted by nature and how buildings impact on nature. I think that's the really great value for Living Building Challenge. Amazing. That's so interesting. Thank you so much, Joe. Can you give us some points about what architects and emerging architects can do right now? I think definitely we talked tonight about, or we talked in this session about the communication point. And I, I really do think there's no other better media or advertising than you. What you can say, the stuff that you already know and how you could expand what you know and then just sharing it with people in a really meaningful way, whether that's your clients or your workplace or your friends and family or, yeah, just people you meet on the bus, I think that is a really important part of it. And to consider that uh, one voice is enough and you are enough as a little person to be able to affect and effect change by advocating for what you believe in. And I guess what I've taken from tonight and what I would like to engage in further is to actually start to research uh, a little bit when I have some free time into some of these materials um, and go through our specification lists at work and actually inquire into the manufacturing uh, processes and suppliers and see if they know the answers or whether they can get me the answers to try and make better choices and build that inventory of knowledge and awareness to be able to responsibly specify. Yeah, I think responsible specification is just, it's so, it relates back to so many different things to do with sustainability. So, I guess if we could say, what can you start doing? Well, you can start responsibly certifying, but that's easier said than done. It depends, you know, if you're just come into a workplace and you're a low level worker, if there's the opportunity in your organization to say, hey, could we have a bit of time together to just think about the environment and to maybe prioritize what is important for us and would I be supported to go ahead and, and do this research or to ring these companies or email, whatever, stalk them on social media, whatever it is you need to do, to kind of work together in your organisation to decide on what those priorities are and and maybe to say, look, if I did this and then I could sort of report back on that or, you know, maybe give people a bit of an output of what you would achieve. And then in terms of research, you don't try and do everything, like maybe do one product a time, one that particularly finds some passion in you, just research that one and get that done and then show yourself that you can do that and then you know, you've got something positive to move forward with next time. And if you just start poking around and like listening to podcasts, for example, on this kind of theme, there's certainly heaps of them out mm. there. Totally. There's a few uh, TED Talks about regenerative thinking um, and I think 
just becoming a little bit more aware of this whole sustainability game and regenerative game that we have to actually go beyond doing less bad and giving back, moving into that giving back where we're doing less bad, but we're also going beyond that and uh, improving our environment. So how can you go onto a site and actually construct something that is improving the biodiversity on that site? Like that's quite a, a challenge, I think. I agree. Is there anything else you think we should tell the young people out there today, Kalina? I think energy and enthusiasm is a is a massive thing. If you can bring that to your role, like it doesn't matter if you don't know everything, that's kind of what practice teaches you and it takes years of experience. But if you can bring your energy and enthusiasm to something that you're passionate about, people are more likely to take it on board. Yeah, that's right. And I think what you're saying there too um, about not knowing everything it's okay I don't know everything no one knows everything so it's okay to not know and it's okay to say actually I don't really know about that but I'd be really interested to find out wouldn't you and you think about sustainable design it really has been around for a long time but still there's just constantly emerging information and knowledge around that and the other thing around enthusiasm, I mean, Kalina, you are a case in point. You are so enthusiastic. And when I shared an office with you and I listened to you engaging with clients, I was just always going, this woman is going somewhere because you just always had that passion. And I think that really gets people off their seat or gets people to click to where you need them to go. Yeah. And that that's what it is. Like how can you be that special voice that really gets people to move and take action? Yes, without knowing everything. Yeah. Curious. Curious but keen. Yeah. <laughs> Curious and keen. All right, well, Thank you so much, Joe, for your time this evening and for joining us on Specifying and Responsibility, the mini episode for Imagine National. It's really been a delight and I'm sure all of our listeners are going to take away something from this discussion. So thank you so much. Thanks, Kalina. It's been really great and best of luck to everybody. Good on you. Thanks for listening. This has been a mini episode of Hearing Architecture featuring Dr. Josephine Vaughan and Imagine Committee member Kalina Sparks. If you'd like to hear more interviews with architects from around Australia, please keep listening to Hearing Architecture on your favourite podcast app. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au.
This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.